John already referenced the weather. It puts me in a good mood. It just makes me happy when it's 60 degrees in the morning instead of 85 or 90. Nothing against John. I think it's wishful thinking that this is the harbinger of of all cool weather from here on out. I've lived in Texas long enough to know that you will get triple-digit heat on Halloween, possibly on Thanksgiving, occasionally on Christmas Eve. Um, it's a little bit like Garrison Keillor. For those of you who like Lake Wobegon, Garrison Keillor tells the story of false assurance that comes for those who live in Minnesota. When springtime hits, it's the other side of the coin. There, they're looking forward to warm weather. And warm weather will come in April, and everyone puts away ice scrapers and snow shovels. And then that late April, May... June or July blizzard will come through and bury them and put them in their place. That kind of transience and being unsettled with a lack of permanence is appropriate, actually, as we think about this morning's passage. The Apostle John is addressing for his flock, his little congregation, the people whom he affectionately calls little children, He's addressing for them the problem that things have looked good in the past. The gospel was so sweet and so refreshing, and it promised permanence. And now people are leaving. People are going out and finding other teachers. People are chasing new versions of Jesus and new teachings altogether, new doctrines and new gospels. And so with stakes much higher than fall weather... John is trying to comfort a people who feel blindsided by transience. It's appropriate that this morning, when we have this passage in front of us, we started off by singing Abide With Me, an entire song about the Lord's promise to and faithfulness to abide with us as his people through all stages of life, in the face of all trials, that on our heads he smiled early in youth, and has never left us, though we've often given him reason to with our own leaving. That other foes have pressed us or deserted us, and he has never failed to bless. And that's the good news that John holds out for us this morning in this portion of his letter. Little Christians, as we read this passage together, this is my question for you. We often explain Christianity in terms of what it takes to make you or to make other people Christians? What do you have to believe on the front end? What things need to be done coming into the church? This morning as you listen to this passage, I want you to answer this question. Not what makes you a Christian in the first place, but what or who keeps us Christian? Once we belong to the church, who holds on to us? And what does that look like? This is good news held out to us in the face of difficulty as John preached it to his congregation quite a while ago, but it is no less true this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the faithful one, to come and faithfully redeem us. To come and take up residence with us in the incarnation, to live among us, to worship and minister, and struggle under the curse yet without sin, to suffer for us, to rise again, to bring us new life, and to promise us a resurrection of our own. We thank you for the faithfulness of the Spirit with whom you have anointed us to lead us as your church together into the truth of your gospel, not just in understanding, not just in the mechanics of knowledge, but actually in living it, in rejoicing in it, in finding great rest in it. O Father, by your grace, you abide faithfully with us. Your truth has taken up residence in us by the abiding work of your Spirit. Would you grant us the grace to enjoy our abiding in you. Grant us these things in abundance this morning and as we grow in your grace. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. John covers two major themes in this portion of his letter, and he ties them up with a third that takes up the bulk of our passage this morning. Instead of making vague reference to problems in the church, instead of talking in the abstract about trials, whatever they might be, whenever you might encounter them, he takes head-on the problem of specific people leaving this congregation for specific heresies. Real people leaving the church. And a church that's disrupted watching those that they have loved and served with run away and chase after false Christs. He takes head on that disruption and then he unapologetically does the second piece. He preaches to them things they already know. He's repetitive. He repeats himself. 
He says the same thing twice, like I'm doing right now. But he doesn't apologize for it, and he doesn't joke about it. He says, I'm preaching to you the things that you already know, not because you don't know them. I'm preaching to you the things you know because you know them. You need this repetition in the face of this very specific trial. As people leave for false Christ, let's rehearse who Christ really is and what he's really done for us. He grounds all of those things in the eternality of God, in the permanence of of God's saving intentions for His people, the abiding work of His Spirit, and the grace of our abiding in Him. All through this passage, you should hear, as we do all through this letter, echoes of John's Gospel. You should hear echoes of John 15, and the instructions and the goodness held out for those who actually abide in Christ. And you can see glimpses without the same language, but glimpses of people who are cut out and thrown away, as as Jesus described in explaining the Father's work in dressing the vine of John 15, cutting out what is not fruitful, what does not truly belong to the vine. You can hear echoes of John 10 and John 17, that Jesus and the Father are one. John says it multiple times, multiple ways for us, even inside this passage. You can't have one without the other. If you get the Father, it's because you have the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father. You don't get one without the other. You cannot disown one without showing yourself to have never belonged to either. So John takes on this very disruptive transience in the church. Because it needs to be addressed. We live in a world of transience. We suffer transience all around us very often. We long for the permanence that Jesus holds out to us in the gospel. And we can't imagine anything more disruptive than finding in the church the same transience we felt everywhere else. There are things that are minorly transient, and there are things that are more substantially transient. In the last several years, some of you have felt the transience of work, being laid off, losing jobs, changing careers. Some of you have felt transience in Marriages that ended in divorce or engagements that were called off. Family relationships that were severed or strained because of misunderstandings or grudges. As we've referenced several times from the pulpit in the last six months, for a congregation of our size, we have faced a lot of death in the last few years. We've felt the transience of life under the curse in that it comes to the unnatural end in death and loved ones are taken from us by an enemy we wait to see put away. In the face of all of this transience, it's supposed to be good news when you come into the church that Jesus will never leave or forsake you, that his gospel is permanent, that his love doesn't change, as we've sung many times before. And John's congregation is disrupted violently. 
as they watch transients creep into their church, as people who are supposed to be settled in the permanence of Christ are leaving. They're leaving and they're finding other teachers who will tell them something more clever, more impressive, maybe just more novel about Christ himself. This is incredibly unsettling, not just for them, but for us. And so John takes it head on and deals with it faithfully and honestly. He doesn't pull any punches. He just simply says, they're leaving us because they didn't really belong to us. And that's not a theological punt on John's part. That's not him changing the game. It's exactly what we heard in John 15 when Jesus preached the good news of the vine and the vine dresser and the limbs that are pruned to bear more fruit and the limbs that are cut off. John says when these people leave, they leave not just for preferences, not just for better scheduling. These people are leaving for false gospels. These people are leaving because they've not been born from above with the work of the abiding Spirit. I want to take a second and explain the disruption of people leaving in our context. We haven't had a ton of leaving, but as a church in transition, it's natural for us to have some attrition, to have some people who leave. Let me be very clear. I am not aware of anyone who has left in this sense. And I want us to be careful when we talk about people leaving New St. Peter's that we don't label them as leaving for some lesser gospel or lesser Jesus. I am not aware of anyone who has walked away to walk away from the faith. I'm aware of people who have moved churches, but they haven't left the church. Those two things are very, very different. In the church where we worshipped before Kara and I came to New St. Peter's, we had a friend who left that church for the Unitarian Church because they were so friendly. And when questioned about their doctrine, not for checking boxes, but actually what do they say about our Jesus What do they say about God the Father and the Spirit? What do they believe redemption actually is? Her answer was that those things were incidental. These people are more friendly. That's leaving in John's sense. That's leaving the faith for something other than the church. That's not what's happening when people leave New St. Peter's, as far as I'm aware. But there are false gospels for us to beware of. Church preferences are not false gospels. Different traditions inside Christendom are not false gospels. Every week that we have communion, we, say, we recite the Apostles' Creed together, and we affirm our belief in the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, the Universal Church. 
What we're saying there is, not, is that New St. Peter's is not the only church that has ever gotten it right. We're saying there that outside of our walls, there are other faithful communities of believers connected to Christ, fed on his gospel, grown in his grace, and dwelt by his spirit. What John is addressing is the disruption of people wholeheartedly leaving not just this church, but the church. They're chasing after other teachers who will tell them something novel, something that is starting to, at this point in church history, to look like the Gnosticism that Steve Bagby explained last week in our School of Life and Doctrine. It's not fully taken that shape yet, but it's headed that way when John writes this letter. And so these people are leaving not for muddier teaching on Jesus, not for teaching that's not John's preference on Jesus. They're leaving for teaching that reinvents Jesus. So when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, he doesn't mean your church should be without teachers, your church should be without pastors. He means because the church corporately is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the church doesn't have to go outside of itself to find some secret sage who has access to a special Jesus no one's really told you about. In John's Gospel, we get to see both sides of this, both perspectives. In the goodness of God, he peels back the curtain in John 10, and Jesus explains what this looks like from God's perspective. When Jesus says that those that belong to him are held in his hand and no one can snatch them, and that held in his hand they're also held in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch any of his people from the Father's hand. But then in the goodness of God, in John chapter 6, we get to see things more the way we experience them. In John 6, when Jesus confronts the idolatry and the selfishness and the greediness of people who wanted to follow him just for the free bread, he confronts the crowd and many leave. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, will you leave as well? Peter's answer, Peter being held in Jesus' hand and in the Father's hand irrevocably, unchangeably held by God's grace, looks like Peter's response in John 6. Lord, where would we go? Whom would we follow if we didn't follow you? You have the words of life. There's no Messiah out there for us but you. It's not a held against our will. It's a holding that has changed our wills so that we love to be held by God and we want never to escape from Him. And even in our darkest moments when we think we do, He pulls us back. Just like we said in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, it was the assurance on page 5. O God of our salvation, You are faithful to collect us when we wander from Your wisdom. This is the permanence and abiding that John holds out as good news in the face of all the transients that has crept into their church. 
as false disciples, false Christians are leaving because they were never really devoted to Christ, because they never really belonged to Him, as these people leave and these, this congregation's faith is disrupted, John holds out to them the goodness that Jesus abides with them. The Father's goodness abides with them. The work of the Spirit abides in them, and they are held irrevocably by His grace. Any who leave permanently never belong to Him in the first place. And that's the point of John's repetitive preaching. As he says in verses 20 and 21, you all have knowledge, you've all been anointed by the Holy Spirit. I'm writing these things to you not because they're new, not because this doctrine is suddenly important and I forgot to tell you before, not because they're not aware of these things, but because they already know them. We often talk about repetitive preaching as a necessary, a necessary corrective to our own forgetfulness. Because my heart is forgetful, I need these aspects of the gospel preached to me repeatedly. That's true. That's not the only reason for repetitive preaching. This is very appropriate for a long-winded and repetitive preacher. I find great solace in John's acknowledgement that he is repetitive. But he preaches them, he preaches things to them that are not new, because preaching is not about wowing a crowd with new information. It's not about a new spin on the gospel. And there are times that it works as a corrective against our own forgetfulness, our own tendencies to flatten out or diminish the beauty of the gospel. But there's also a beauty in the repetitive preaching of good news where it takes deeper root in our hearts through the repetitive proclamation. There are lots of things that we do repeatedly that only serve to grow and deepen. They're not necessarily overcoming some attrition on our part. We were planting bulbs yesterday because Walker wanted to, and he wanted to have bulbs that would bloom in the spring. So we went to Home Depot and we found some, and then we started talking about the way the roots work, the way the bulb actually grows into a flower that will bloom around Easter as a symbol of resurrection. That bulb will sit there, and from all appearances above ground, it will be dormant. At the right time, the roots will start to grow and they'll penetrate the ground deeper and deeper and the roots will get thicker and healthier and they will draw in more water and nutrients. We'll water our bulbs before we see growth. And we'll water them repeatedly, not because those bulbs are prone to forget the water, not because they're prone not to make use of it, but because they do draw on it continually And the more we water them, the deeper those roots go go in the earth, the more they nourish the bulb, the taller and more vibrant and healthy 
the flower will actually become. And it works that way for us in the gospel. It is true that we are prone to forget the gospel, but it's also true that the gospel takes deeper and deeper root in us as it is preached to us over and over again. So John makes no apology for his repetitive preaching. He tells them up front they're not going to be impressed with the novelty of what he writes to them. They already know all of this stuff. But he preaches to them for their good because they already know these things, because rehearsing them is worthwhile, and because the roots that the gospel puts down penetrate deeper and deeper into the mess and the beauty of our lives under the gospel. John takes all of this, the disruption of people leaving, showing themselves to be false disciples from the beginning, And he takes his repetitive preaching and he ties them all up in the eternality of God and the permanence of his saving intentions for his people. Over and over through this book, we find the phrase, from the beginning. John started the the letter that way. That which was from the beginning, that which we saw with our eyes and felt with our hands and heard with our ears, we proclaim to you. We heard it a couple weeks ago with the commandment to love one another. When John issues it, he says, on one hand, this is a new commandment, but on another, this is really very old. This is the commandment you've had from the beginning. When he explains to them who Christ is and why he and the Father and the Spirit are perfectly and permanently good to them, he roots it in a gospel they have heard and believed from the beginning. They don't need a new spin on the gospel. They don't need some secret formula to pray. They need to sit in. They need to abide in all that they've heard from the beginning. Verse 24, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. There is a reciprocal abiding. As God who is true and in whom there is no lie, God who is light and in whom there is no darkness, however John might say it to us through the book, God is perfect in His holiness and His truth, and it's been that way from the beginning. God's salvation is perfect. His redemption is full and beautiful, and it's always been that way. This has been God's intention from the beginning. This is who God has been from the beginning, and He will not change. And so whatever changes around them, whatever transience they encounter, whatever false teachings assault the church, and whatever disruption they experience as people leave to chase after them, God does not change. He is the one who has been with them from the beginning. The message of the gospel is the message that has been preached to them and held out to them and believed by them from the beginning. And those things do not change. A couple of weeks ago, I used Sophie June's phrase, 
for real life, to explain the fullness of the gospel worked out in the practical details of the everyday. That the goodness of God actually makes a difference in our real lives. What John is holding out to us here is that the goodness of God works out for our entire lives. I don't mean entirety in every aspect, though that's true as well. Here in this passage, I mean the entire scope, the entire duration of our lives. From beginning to unending in eternal life. The love of Jesus we hold out as Reformed Christians often is irresistible. That is true. What John has in mind here is the number of ways that his love is irrevocable. It's unlosable. That if God has loved us, he does not lose us. If we have been loved by God, we do not lose his affection, his intention, his salvation, his belonging, his fatherly smile that we sang about at the beginning of the service. This is what John preaches to us over and over again through the letter. You can't lose it for weakness. You can't lose it because your sanctification is messy. As John preached to us last week, not John the Apostle, John the soon-to-be reverend. You can't lose it for your guilt. If any of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God abides with us. The beauty held out in this passage is that God who abides with us irrevocably changes us by His grace, His unlosable grace. So that as our hearts are changed, we abide with Him more naturally and more fully. But part of the deal was that it was always going to be permanent. This is the theme of many songs we're singing this morning. It's the theme of many songs we sing often. I've already referenced Abide With Me, that God smiled on us in early youth, that He's never left us as often as we have turned away from Him. In a minute, we'll sing, O love that will not let me go. That is exactly what John is preaching to us here. God's love refuses to let us go. That is the most loving, most kind, most perfect redemption for us. We'll sing it in Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. When we sing the line, haste thee on from grace to glory, from introduction to consummation. God's love is not only irresistible. That is a beautiful aspect of the gospel. His love and the change that it brings, it's irrevocable. It is unchangeable. It is unlosable. And we rehearse it week after week as we come together in worship, as I preach to you repetitive sermons, as Scripture holds out to us over and over again things that we already know that take deeper root in our hearts. God's love for us is unchanging and unlosable. And that doesn't ease the pain of watching people walk away from the faith. But it does settle our restless hearts in the faithfulness of God when it happens. 
God has called us together to belong to each other under the gospel, to preach repetitively to each other, sometimes from a pulpit and sometimes at lunches, sometimes over coffee, sometimes when we get together as home groups, not because we need new information, but because God and his saving intentions for us have not changed. And there is a beauty and a goodness to rehearsing those things in the midst of a world that changes around us constantly. Especially in this season of transition as New St. Peter's. As things may feel transient, If the Apostle John were here with us this morning, more personally than through this letter given to us by the Spirit and through him, if the Apostle John were standing behind this pulpit this morning, he would take inventory of all the things that feel transient to us, all the things that feel in flux, all of the ways that the church might feel unsettled. He would hold out to us the goodness that Jesus is abiding with us. Not only in spite of the things that feel transient, but in their midst, through them. When John explains these people and their leaving, as lamentable as that is, as disruptive as it is, he explains it in terms of God's purpose. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And then he explains God's sovereign intention in these people leaving the church. This disruption, this feeling of transience in what should be permanent. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. As painful and as disruptive as it was for this young church so many centuries ago, God was working out good purposes for them and making things evident to them about his own permanence and stability, his own abiding, the permanence of the work of the Spirit in them, holding them, in the face of so much unsettling. And all of these things, God was teaching them practically and by experience that his gospel doesn't rest on any of those things. His gospel doesn't rest on the perceived stability around them, even in their own church. If John were behind this pulpit this morning... That's what he would preach to us. God is being good to us in the midst of transition. God is establishing our faith and confidence in his stability, not in all of the pieces that might feel in transition, might feel transient at the moment, in himself, in who he is and what he's always intended for us, in the hope of our final redemption and resurrection and the continued work of the Spirit, and the fellowship we have with one another as John will preach throughout this book. And the goodness of new life taking root in God's people and bearing fruit continually. 
Those things are His permanent saving intentions for us. And there is a day when all transience is put away, when redemption is final and full and complete, and the curse is done, and there is nowhere to defect. There is no more rebellion. There is no more false belief. There are no more false Christs or false gospels. Everything is permanent. Until then, God is perfectly permanent and His intentions for us individually and corporately are permanent. He intends and rejoices to do us good. This new St. Peter's is the good news of Jesus and His irrevocable, unlosable love. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are unchanging in who you are, in your goodness toward us. We thank you that you have loved us with an unchanging love. In your goodness, you lose none whom you actually give to yourself to be your worshipers. We ask that you would Give us humility, give us grace, and give us joy as we celebrate the diversity that exists in your church, but also give us discernment as we consider what things in your gospel are unchanging, what things we think we see that are preferences. In the midst of anything unsettling for us, We find you perfectly abiding with us by your grace, by the work of your Spirit. You grow in us the new life that you have given. We have the joy of abiding with you. And all of these things confirm further for us your promises and your intentions. We ask that you would do these things for us, for our good, and for your glory in the church. Amen.